And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we are back. Thank you so much for tuning in for yet another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Conaway, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC, and I would be so remiss if I did not tell you that today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably, and also helping Startup Hustle get going and rocking. So we just love them. So today, we, ha- we have a very special guest. Anytime we have a guest who speaks my language, I get really excited because I know we're about to have a really, really good conversation. But today we have with us Leanne Peterson. And Leanne is founder of L Street Partners. She is a thought leader and an advocate for women and collaboration and empowerment, which, as you know, if you've ever listened to one of my shows or things that I could talk about all day long. We're not going to do that, but we are going to thank Leanne for being with us here today. And I am so excited to have you, Leanne. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Lauren. This is really exciting. It's actually only my second podcast, so I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. We're going to get through this and you're going to, we're going to hop off the the recording and you're going to say, this was so much more fun than I thought it was going to be. That's what generally happens. So no pressure though. (laughs) Okay. So so let's go ahead and, and hop right into it because I'm, I'm really curious to hear I want to hear more about you, um, you know, a little bit about your journey into leadership. Um, I'd like to hear about L Street Partners, but but let's start with how, how did you get here? How did you get to doing what you do now? Sure. Well, thank you for the question. Um, my journey continues and hopefully I still have a good 20 years of work left in me. So um, this is uh, the halfway point of my journey and it all started back in San Bernardino, California, when I went into foster care as a teen youth. And I actually had one of the better experiences in foster care. Uh, you'll hear a lot of horror stories of kids who, who didn't have it so well. Um, but I, I ended up with a really good family. In fact, they're still my family. Um, so I had a more positive experience. But my goal at that point in time was to graduate high school go on to college to be the first person in my biological family or my foster family to go to college uh, and just to have a career and break out of the cycle of poverty that my family had been in and really just to survive. And if I could be a you know pillar to the community, then so much the better. But really the goal was just getting out of San Bernardino. Uh, so I, I graduated high school. I went to college, I went to graduate school, and throughout all this time, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I did it, now what? Um, Maybe I should give back. And so I started thinking about 
becoming a politician. And my dream for a long time was to be an elected official in California. And so I did all the things that you would do if you were preparing for a political career. Um, And I packed up my stuff and I moved to Washington, D.C. and I got a job with a congressman. And then I really saw firsthand what goes into politics and and being a, a public figure. And I decided, well, maybe that's not for me, but maybe I could also give back and make a positive impact to the to the world on the other side of the public policy table, which would be the side of the table where the advocate sits. So I got involved with a group called Women in Government Relations. This is a professional society of women lobbyists uh, founded in the 1980s as a sort of a kitchen table place where people could just vent and talk about horror stories of bosses asking them for coffee in the middle of a meeting. And it's now uh, about a thousand members strong. And I, I joined that group. I rose up through the ranks. I ended becoming their president. And what I realized throughout that time was that my passion was actually for women's empowerment. It, it wasn't for lobbying. It wasn't for advocacy. It wasn't even really for public policy. My passion was equipping women with the tools they need to advocate for themselves or their organization or their cause or their industry. And so about eight years ago, I started a conference for women advocates called Professional Women in Advocacy Conference. Last year, I sold that conference to Women in Government Relations because I figured that was the rightful place for that conference to be. Um, This year, I'm co-producing the conference with them. It happens in November. And it's going to be virtual because of the pandemic. Um, But once that transaction was done, I started to think, well, now what do I do with my time? I still want to work in women's empowerment, but I no longer have this vehicle of this conference to do it with. So I started L Street Partners. And it's basically a public relations, communications, marketing firm We do pretty much everything in Washington, D.C., except for lobbying. We don't really do a lot of lobbying. Um, We do marketing, sales, public relations, branding. um, And our audience is the D.C. audience. Our audience are people working on K Street in the influence business or people working on the Hill in government. So... And we produce events and we do some fundraising. It's pretty much we do everything except for lobbying. But our the key to this whole company with L Street is I said, you know what? I don't want to be just another K Street firm. So we're going to be an L Street firm, which is a little bit different. It's a little less male, a little less white, and we're way more creative. And that ended up being our tagline. And so now we have five people working in the firm um, three of them are women of color. Then there's myself and, and our other colleague. And the one thing that we have in common beyond women's empowerment is just that we all wanted a really special, cool, fun place to work where we respected each other. We could say what we wanted to say without feeling like we were going to be judged or laughed at. It's, we've really just created a safe space for women to collaborate and uh, work together and share ideas. And, and I'm, the only regret I have about any of it is that it took me this long to start something like that because 
it's really been uh, a blessing to, to be able to work with like-minded women. That's incredible. Um, and, I, and I have to tell you, I was kind of giggling to myself over here because when you said we're a little less male, we're a little less white, and we're a lot more creative, I, the first thing that popped into my head immediately was like, that should be your tagline. <laughs> and then you said it. Okay. Like, oh, All right. It's, That's amazing. So. It's a little <laughs> bit racy of a tagline for Washington DC, which is still very, a very conservative place with a little C. Um, so I did get some pushback from some female colleagues that said, hey, are you sure you really want to go out there and say that about your firm? And I said, yeah, I, I, I do. Cause that's, what's going to make us different. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that so much. I, I one of these days we'll do like a Zoom call or something, and we'll have a drink in hand, and I'll tell you about all of the uh, pushback I've gotten for some some pretty um, oh I don't know pointed branding <laughs> that, that we've introduced. I, I love it. Um, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack you just a little bit. And I want to talk to you about your early experiences, um, because, you know, it sounds like you you came up in, in less than ideal circumstances and you were able to take one of the things that I admire most about so many women is that they're able to take tough circumstances and turn that outward into positive action. Um, I see it time and time again. So many of the guests on this show, I have been privileged to talk to women who do this constantly. And so I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that and, and, and ask you, how do you think your earlier experiences informed your, your current worldview? Oh, I love this question. This is such a great question because... I didn't really have a worldview um, until pretty recently, actually. And it's amazing to me that I had to turn 50 years old before I realized my worth and that I had value and that uh, I wasn't an imposter. Um, you know, growing up in a broken home and then in foster care, you know, you always kind of feel like the situation is somehow your fault. You know, your parents didn't really want you. Um, you were a burden to them. They couldn't take care of you. You know, you caused them to drink and fight. And so, you know, you grow up with this idea that you're really not worth very much, that all you do is cause problems. And then one day you, you're enlightened. You know, for me, it was, it was college, of course. College opened my eyes and I studied abroad and got to learn another culture and that further opened my eyes. And I, I finally realized that I do have worth and that I do have something to contribute. And, but still in the back of your mind, um, you, there's this nagging feeling, you know, when you're a young professional in your first job or second job that, you know, whatever you say or whatever ideas you come up with that, you know, the partners aren't really going to like it, or they're going to think it's dumb or, you know, there's always this, this imposter syndrome people, you know, people have written a lot about it. It's in the book lean in and women suffer from this, um, probably more so than men who tend to fake it until they make it. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I realized pretty recently actually that, um, 
you know, I can do this. I do have value and my input is fantastic. And the entrepreneurial side of me is thinking, well, nobody else has done this, but there's certainly a niche for this. Why don't you do it? You're capable. You have the subject matter expertise. You have the network of contacts. You have the startup funding. You know, you could totally do this. Uh, and it's real. You're not faking it. You're not an imposter. And so it was hard. It was really hard to break break out of that um, those feelings of in, in insecurity or, or that I wasn't... Um, you know, capable when I was young, but I, it finally, it took a while, but, but we're finally there. And that was also part of the inspiration for launching the firm. You know, you, you keep on hitting on, on the conversational threads that I want to follow a little bit. This is really interesting, but you, you said inspiration. And I, I actually wanted to ask you, you know, today, Leanne, as this empower, personally empowered and professionally empowered woman, what inspires you? Oh, other women, for sure. Um, starting <laughs> starting with my foster mom, right? Like my biological mom, you know, for all her faults, I've, I've finally forgiven her for all of her, her faults and inadequacies. Um, and she was rather a victim of the times. You know, this would have been the, the late 60s, early 70s when my family went through all this stuff. And... But my only role model at that point in time was a woman who depended on a man and was able, you know, was, would take a beating just because she couldn't go anywhere. You know, um, uh, she didn't, she graduated high school, but she, beyond secretarial school skills, she really didn't have a trade. And so um, I guess in a way she inspired me to never be, um, to, to never be someone who couldn't provide for themselves, right? To never be um, not self-sufficient or independent. But then I went into foster care and this foster mom that I have, her name is Karen. Karen is amazing. Karen, um, you know, you have to go for an interview with your prospective family before you actually um, move into their home. And so I went to Karen's office. Karen owned her own real estate company. Uh, it was an escrow firm and she had a big oak desk and fancy high heels, and she was smoking a cigarette, and I walked into her office, and I sat down across the desk from her, and I'd never met anyone like her. She had big fake eyelashes and high heels, and could type 60 words a minute with long fingernails, and she was just amazing to me, um, and she has actually been my inspiration. She she was an entrepreneur um, since she got out of, of real estate school. She got an AA and went on to open her own company. She's gone from owning that escrow firm. She sold it. She went into real estate. She got her broker's license. She owned her own brokerage firm. And, you know, she would take on side projects. Like one year she made those glitter glue t-shirts that are so like horribly tacky, but <laughs> she loved them and her friends all I bought love them. It. And, you know, she would make a couple hundred bucks and she would take it to Vegas and put it in the slot machines. Like she was just always very entrepreneurial and taught us girls to be entrepreneurial if we wanted, if that was that we could do anything that we set our mind to. And so I would say my biggest inspiration was is her. Um, but then I'd also be remiss if I didn't say it's also politicians like um, 
you know, Nancy Pelosi, who's also from California, Kamala Harris from from California, um, Jackie Spears, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court. I mean, these are these are trailblazing women in my uh, in my industry of government relations and and government affairs, who I also really, really respect. Yeah. I have a deep and abiding love for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like just stickers and t-shirts. And I, ha- I have a doll. Um, I'll have to show you sometime, but I, I just, I love her. Um, every time they, they report that she is going to the hospital, I'm like, you will not take her from us. 2020, you will not do it. Um, no, please yeah, no. no. I just can't. <laughs> please no. Um, but- so- but, you know, I also have Republican heroes. I don't want folks on the podcast to think that I'm completely left-leaning. I mean, I really admire and respect Republican women right now. They're in a very tough position. The leadership of their party doesn't fully appreciate the capabilities of, of women. So, you know, I would I would hold out there, you know, the Condoleezza Rices of the world um, who are so amazing, Nikki Haley, um, you know, Senator Murkowski from Alaska. These are these are all women who I also really respect and admire. And in some ways, their job is a lot harder because what they're selling right now is is not something that everybody's buying. Right. Well, it, yeah, I actually saw um, Cindy McCain speak at a Women's mm-hmm. Foundation event not too long ago, and she's actually been doing a lot of work with um, sex trafficking and advocacy. Mm-hmm. And I just I love that she's taking her platform and she's using it for so much good. So, so de- you're, you're absolutely right. Like there are definitely incredible examples of womanhood across both sides of the aisle. Um, absolutely. So, yeah. So, so let me, I, I want to circle back to that entrepreneurial piece because we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening to the show. Um, and, and I want to, I want to ask you, you, you had this great example of an entrepreneurial woman in your life who gave you the freedom and the agency to be entrepreneurial yourself and tried to, you know, cultivate that in you. What I want to ask is how does that manifest itself in you today? What does your entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit look like in your day to day? My entrepreneurial spirit is schizophrenic. Um, she is a woman who has, <laughs> she is a woman that has 20 ideas a day, um, of, of companies that she could start and products that she could develop and things that society needs. Um, in fact, I'm working right now with another colleague of mine, who's an artist and we're designing a line of RBG t-shirts because we think that this year, because there's so much momentum behind women and women candidates, it's probably going to end up being another year of the woman in November. You know, why not ride that women's empowerment wave by creating RBG bumper stickers and t-shirts? And so now like I'm in the t-shirt business somehow, but it's, <laughs> um, it's because I, I am, I just can't stop my entrepreneurial spirit. It's just like, you know, uh, it's like breathing air. You know, you wake up every morning and you um, go to work. And by the time you've had your first cup of coffee, you've got five great ideas that now that you've done it once, you know, you could do it again. Um, The challenge, of course, is to pick the ones that have resonance and the ones that, you know, aren't time sucks 
uh, and the ones that make you happy to pursue. So I would say my entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well, and I'm trying to my best to keep a lid on her. <laughs> you know, don't ever do that. Don't, yeah, you can't do that. You, you gotta let that that inner voice that just gives you a million ideas. The problem that I always have is is picking, like, to your point, like with the resonance piece, but picking the ones that are that I can do and that I should do, and like deciding which ones are which. Um, mm -hmm. But but yeah, no, I definitely I, I I'm vibrating with understanding of what you're saying. <laughs> So, so I want to talk a little bit about your your work in advocacy, and and more specifically, I, I think what is really fascinating about what you did with professional women in advocacy, and um, you know these events that you were putting on, is earlier you talked about women having options and 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 having you know different avenues available to them, and what I find really interesting and most impressive about your work is that you are giving options to the people who give options because that's what advocacy is, right? Like that's really what it boils down to. Um, and so, so I'm just, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Why is it important for women to have advocates? Wow. That's, that's a really broad question. And I think it's, you could compare it to anyone having advocates, you know, um, the elderly, the sick, the disenfranchised children. I mean, we all need advocates. We all need someone to look out for us until we can do it for ourselves. Um, and, or until we get to the point where we can't do it for ourselves anymore. Um, what I love about the work that I'm doing right now, um, training and teaching women how to be good advocates, whether it's for themselves, because this year we've, well, since 2016, we've had not just professional women advocates coming to our conference and, and calling in and writing in and wanting us to provide programming. Um, it's been just individual women who don't do advocacy for a living, but they might be advocates in their personal life, you know, whether for their family or at the school or at the church or, or the civic organization. So, um, but the best part about providing those tools for women to advocate for themselves or others is watching their journey of discovering what it is that makes them tick and, and what makes them excited. And I'll give you a couple of examples there were a couple of women that I served in the leadership of this organization with who uh, were terrific advocates for their organization. But what they learned about themselves, in the case of this one colleague, she learned that she was a terrific public speaker. And so she pivoted from, from being an advocate to being a public speaker. And now she's got a book out and she does leadership coaching. And she just realized through her advocacy work, what her true talents were. And that is so powerful to me to think that, you know, you go through your whole life going from job to job, just doing your work and going home and never realizing what it is that you're actually really good at, what you're passionate about. And so that's been, that's been very cool. Um, but the other, obviously the, the other cool thing about it is watching women, um, 
be advocates for themselves and pull themselves out of situations um, and better their lives. That's, that's extremely important. And there's a couple of women um, who I've worked with just giving advice and mentorship to um, who were in a really bad place, but because of the advocacy tools I gave them, were able to pull themselves out of that. Um, and it could be a professional space or a personal space uh, and went on to, to thrive. So that's also very rewarding. Sure. So, so you just mentioned something and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to give away some of your secrets for free. So please forgive me. Uh, but you, you mentioned advocacy tools. Um, and I think that every, every, well, every individual, but every woman should have a toolbox, uh, mental, spiritual, physical toolbox that they can pull from. What are some examples of tools that you, you help these women on their journey to, to becoming better advocates? Oh, absolutely. Great question. And I could talk about this all day um, because there's a bunch of them. So I would start with just a very clear understanding of the way civic society works. So there's, you know, something like only 45% of Americans vote, which is appalling to me. Um, I think it's like one of the most basic things that we all need to do, um, just like you would do jury duty or put your recycling out to the curb. I mean, it's just such an important function. And we don't not we don't even have 50% of Americans who are eligible doing this. So I would say let's start out in our toolkit with a very clear understanding that we have a voice, that we need to use that voice, that you have to vote. And if at all possible, in order to vote, you should prepare yourself and, and educate yourself on the issues. And it's not hard. It literally comes down to reading the newspaper, which a lot of Americans also don't do. It comes down to, you know, listening to town hall meetings. Okay. I know that they're not exciting, but if you want to be an informed voter and an informed citizen, this is the first place to start. So we, we used to sing, um, you know, I'm just a bill up on Capitol Hill and the next, this next School generation, rock. yeah, they don't know Schoolhouse Rock, but it's a great place to start because it just tells you the basic fundamental building blocks of being part of civic society. So I would start there. And then you get into some more advanced um, tactics and tools like communicating with your elected officials. Anyone can do this. You don't have to be a lobbyist to do this. Write a letter. If there's a pothole on your street and you're ticked about it write a letter. Um, in fact, that's most of the letters that mayors get is about potholes, interestingly enough. Um, if, you know if, we had a whole thing here in Kansas City with our mayor. Uh, we had a really bad pothole situation and he he would post about it. It became like the running joke whenever he would speak publicly. Because So in Kansas City, we're very aware that we contact our mayor about potholes. <laughs> Right. And but see, if you didn't do that, then nothing would happen. Right. And then right. you would just go on complaining about the potholes and nothing would ever happen. So if if you want to be engaged, you have to get engaged. If you want to be able to complain about things, you have to get engaged because I won't have a conversation with someone unless they vote. Like if they want to talk to me about how bad our system is or how bad our government is or how bad this president is, I won't engage in that conversation unless they actually vote because it's just a waste of my time. And I, and I resent them, honestly, between you and me. But anyways, that's, and then if you want to yeah, get into like, I know we have a situation. 
but all right. Right. <laughs> I mean, between you and me, I really don't have the time of day for people who don't vote. But, and I don't care if you vote Republican or Democrat, just vote. Um, but then I'll just give you a couple of more examples of other tools in the toolkit um, going from, you know, beginner to advanced. So the next thing that you want to do uh, if you're advocating for something is you want to tell a good story, but you want to be succinct and to the point. So we spend a lot of time uh, teaching people how to message around what it is they're trying to get resolved. If it's a pothole, then you have to explain why the pothole is a problem um, and that you understand perhaps like the funding problem behind getting the pothole fixed, but perhaps where they could get the money to fix the pothole. So there's like this whole approach around messaging around solving the problem. So we spend a lot of time on storytelling. The last thing I would say, um, which can be a little bit more advanced and you can take this as far as you want, if you want to really geek out and learn about this, um, is communicating with elected officials beyond just the way that a normal citizen would do it to write a letter or make a phone call, send a postcard. There are ways that you can um, there are email platforms, there are civic engagement platforms, one of them is called My Democracy, that you can go on and you can, you know, you can use social media to contact your elected official, you can start a letter writing campaign, you can build a coalition, you can um, inspire other people to, to join your cause, you can do a rally, you can show up to a town hall. There are so many ways from beginner to advanced for people to advocate for things. Um, it's a lot of fun. Sh showing people these tools because, you know, it's not something that normal everyday people really think about. And once they see these tools at their disposal, they kind of get excited to use them. It's kind of like, you know, having a new toy. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, and I love that you, you have thrown yourself wholeheartedly into, into this work. I mean, clearly you have a passion for it and an aptitude. So that's, you found your sweet spot, Leanne. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank uh, you. <laughs> so, so I want to ask, and, and you, you, you touched on a piece of this. I, so I have a really bad habit of asking two-part questions. So just bear with me. So the first question that I have, um, you talked about storytelling, but my, but my question is, let's, let's get a little deeper into how to craft a strong message, what specifically that looks like. And, and, and with the understanding that your message could be civic in nature, or your message could be personal in nature. Um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of commonalities between the different kinds of messages that you can send. That's number one. Number two, and I'm really curious about this, and I think you're going to have a good beat on it. Uh, but how does a woman centered message, like if a woman is trying to give a message, does that differ in any way from a man sending a message? Like, is there, are there different things that you need to do? Or I'm just curious. <laughs> oh, Lauren, these are great, great questions. And in fact, I address these issues all the time because, you know, when women want to get more engaged in advocating for something, they want to know what they're up against. You know, they want to know how hard is it going to be as a woman to do this. So let me take the first part of the question first, which had to do with crafting your message. Um, this is super important because the, the best practice on this has actually changed. When I first came into the business, 
25 years ago, you had to make a compelling argument based on the facts. Uh, and if you had some kind of like way to equate your problem to a financial benefit that the government could get from fixing your problem, then that was always the approach that you would take. You would say, well, you know, by fixing that pothole, it could increase commerce and less time spent in traffic. And that will have, you know, create a bump in our local economy. So the financial argument has, has traditionally always been the way to go. But we've recently gotten away from that because it's assumed now that policymakers understand those financial arguments. And now we're getting more into um, remembering me as the person that came into your office with this ask. And in order for you to remember me when you've got a meeting full of 25 other people that day, I need to do something or say something that's going to be memorable. So the best practice now when you're crafting your story is to use it in a real life context. Um, it, it used to be that lobbyists coming into a, a, a congressman's office or a policymaker's office just by their presence and because they probably were on a first name basis could make those asks on his own. But it turns out that lobbyists don't actually vote for these members of Congress. They do contribute to their campaigns. But what's more important nowadays for these elected officials is to hear from actual constituents. So I might be the lobbyist of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but I'm not going to go in to the meeting with the policymaker as the lobbyist of that organization. I'm going to bring in a mother who's lost a child, and I'm going to have her tell her story because that's going to be more memorable. So I can't wait to see what happens in five or 10 years from now. It will probably change again. Um, and who knows what it'll change into, but, but storytelling is always going to be a common part of what we do in advocacy, but the approach does change. So that's part one. Part two of the question, um, as a woman, do people treat you differently? Are the questions that you ask or the way that you advocate or the story that you tell taken differently by your audience? And I would say a hundred percent better than I did. <laughs> what was that? You just said that so much better than I did. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I've said it quite a few times. <laughs> so um, the answer is yes. I mean, very plainly. Yes. I mean, the, in the same way that, you know, a woman presenting a court case is going to sound differently than a man presenting that same case. I mean, we're just different. Um, and Washington and state, I don't mean to make this about D.C., but, you know, politics and, and public policy is still a very male-dominated place, right? Um, we're trying to fix that. We're trying to get more women elected, and someday that will change. But, but right now, it's 50% women in the population and somewhere around 23% representation, which is not good enough. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, right. So, not good enough, um, which means that when you go into an office to advocate for your cause, you're probably going to be talking to a male. Um, so I was a transportation lobbyist for a number of years, and, and that was a very male-dominated industry. And my trick was to wear a bright-colored suit, red or pink or purple or something that stood out. And that made me memorable. And that's one way that, as a woman, I used that difference to my advantage. Um, yeah. But now the best practice is to, you know, kind of demand 
that your story be heard and that it be taken seriously. So like women spend a lot of time prepping for meetings, maybe over prepping because they know that they have to hit the facts. They have to hit the delivery and they have to be even more prepared than their male counterparts. So they won't be taken seriously. And unfortunately I think that that is true and needs yeah. to change. Um, but it's not going to change anytime soon. And the only other thing that I would add to this piece is that, yeah, women, women's issues, okay, get tend to get lumped into one big basket by our male counterparts and by our male leaders. And this is not just in politics. This is in the office, too, in the workplace. You'll notice, like, whenever it's time for someone to golf in the woman's golf event, or whenever it's time for someone to go to a, a woman's banquet, you know, they always round up the most senior woman in the office and say, here, you go do this because it's a woman's thing. And I, I don't get that. Like yeah. I, you know, like send me to a men's banquet or a men's golf tournament and I'll totally handle myself. Like, why are you lumping us all? Yeah. Anyway, it's a pet peeve of mine, but it does happen. And when women advocates show up, um, there is a tendency to to think that they're there to talk about what is perceived as women's issues like healthcare or education or, um, you know, those or, you know, trafficking or, you know, those issues that have to do with women and families. When, by the way, we're conversant in all issues, tax, trade, foreign policy. I mean, Hillary Clinton was a, a, a secretary of state, as was Condoleezza Rice, like some of the highest offices in our land dealing with foreign policy were run by women. So like there aren't women, there, there's no such thing as women's issues and men's issues, but we do tend to get lumped together sometimes. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I have to tell you when you were talking about how, um, you know, women tend to be sent to or tend to gravitate toward those women's events. Uh, that is one of the banes of my existence. Uh, and, and I see it play out all the time. Innovate Her KC, we put on a lot of events and most of them are open to all genders, you know, male, female, non-binary, like whatever you identify as, we, we want you here to become a part of our community and to, and to learn because, you know, often our events are opportunities to learn. And it's so frustrating to me because time and time again, we see woman, 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 woman in the audience when everybody has so much to learn from these these women that we are are putting in front of the audience you know they have they have achieved they are leaders they have insight to share and everybody could benefit from that um so it just it drives me nuts <laughs> me too so, so i'm actually and oh, it's go it's ahead like, i'm sorry to cut you off it's you know the other dimension of that is like why would we want a room full of women if we're going to talk about women's issues? Like the only way anything is going to change is if our male counterparts are in the room and part of that conversation. I would argue the same is happening right now in diversity, equity, inclusion. The DEI space is incredibly popular right now. Everyone wants to have programming around this idea and everyone wants to do their part to be more inclusive. But when you go to a DEI event, who's in the audience? women and people of color. And that's not who we need to be talking to, you know, it's, it's, it's right. white, well, white men. 
I mean, to, to be, you know, 100% fair and balanced, I would say that I know so many men who, who want to be really good allies and want to be supportive and don't necessarily know exactly how to do it. So, so I'm going to issue a challenge to our, our, our guy listeners, because I know you're out there. And I'm going to say, I challenge you, the next time you see a, a conference that appears as though it's geared toward women, consider attending. And, and, and see what kind of learning you can bring home after hearing a, a very different perspective. So, so I'm going to issue that challenge. Um, feel free to, to shoot me an email or let me know if you do that, because I want to hear how it, uh, how it plays out. And Leanne, I will let you know as well. I would love <laughs> to know. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so I have thoroughly enjoyed our time, but I'm, I'm going to ask you, I, I'm going to ask you the fun question. Here it comes. Um, and so I, I don't know why I want to ask you this question, but I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite object, something that you own that gives you joy? And it could be a piece of clothing. It could be a toy. It could be, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Wow. Okay. You can even, you could name a couple. <laughs> Okay, would it really sound super awful and like bad, conceited, whatever, if I said my Tesla? It's not a really nice Tesla. It's a Series 3, <laughs> which is like the base yeah. model, right? It's like, it's no, no bells and whistles, you know, no frills. It's the Series 3, but I love this car. I freaking love this car. I love to do conference calls in this car. I love to do Zoom calls in this car. I love to take this car. I love it. And and the best part about it is not just its sleek look and feel and the way that it jumps from zero to 60 off the line in 10 seconds or five seconds. It's, it, it's truly a beautiful, lovely, wonderful car. But the best thing I like about it is I haven't been to a gas station, Lauren, in three years. Think about that. Oh, my God. I have not been to a gas station in three years. So while everybody else is spending $40 a week to fill their tank, I have not been to a gas station once, nor have I been to a garage because there are no moving parts. There's no engine. So there's no like getting yeah. the oil changed or replacing the air filters. None of that. The only thing that you need to ever worry about with this car is tires and windshield wipers. I kid you not. That is such a great answer. I, I, I love that you were that passionate about your vehicle. That makes me really happy. And it also makes me want a Tesla. <laughs> everyone well, will have well, a Tesla. Everyone will have a Tesla. Mark my words. Everyone will have either or some kind of electric vehicle. It doesn't have to be a Tesla. And it could even be a hybrid. But at some point, we will all have these because they're, the technology is there. You can drive further and further. I drove mine to Montana last year. Um, and it's, you don't, it, it's good for the environment, which is another bonus. Anyways, it, you know, reduces our, our need for foreign oil, another bonus. I could go on, but yeah, everyone's going to have one of these. I feel, I feel like we need to reach out to Tesla and be like, hey, you want to sponsor this episode? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but they, are, they are not sponsoring this episode. And in fact, 
Fullscale.io is the sponsor of this episode. We'd like to thank them. Uh, Fullscale.io is going to help you build a software team quickly and affordably, and we just love them um, for for allowing us to do this. Uh, Leanne, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to chat with us today. Um, it has been it has been lovely, lovely um, talking about all of the things that I love most in this world, but uh, getting your take on it. So thank you for being here with us. It's been my pleasure, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, dear listeners, for coming back to us uh, episode after episode and giving us a listen. We appreciate your time. And we look forward to seeing you for the Startup Hustle podcast in the future. Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.